0: This is Dissecting Dragons, a speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers, by writers and readers. Hello, and welcome
1: to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, it came from out of the closet, the queer relationship with horror. <gasps> Tis the spooky season! <laughs> yes Um, October is Dissecting Dragons Spookathon where we present you with a month's worth of topics on all things creepy spooky and horror related
0: (laughs) incidentally this also seems to be the time where we get the most popular Um, people just seem to really like it yeah (laughs) yeah Now so we've
1: We done... want you to talk about cursed objects! <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, uh, we have done various objects, uh, including uh, hauntings, classic horror, horror classics, books, uh, cryptids, etc. Um, but we've never really ventured into why horror is a genre that draws in members of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, so we thought, what better way to begin the spooky season (laughs) than to talk about being queer in
1: horror (laughs) now in this episode you can obviously expect to hear both our opinions um, but also those of other people in regard to horror films so we're going to paraphrase things we're not directly quoting um we're specifically looking at films although there is also a crossover with horror books However, if we start looking at all of it together, this episode will take the entire month. So one thing at a time. Yes.
0: Uh, Now, we will not be discussing queerness and vampires today uh, because that topic deserves a whole episode on its own. So you can look forward to that in
1: future. Yes. Uh, Now, before we get going, there is a caveat here um, because... Basically, we just want to acknowledge that different horror films provoke different reactions in different people. Uh, horror itself is not a monolith, it's, a, it's comprised of many different subst- subgenres.
0: Mm -hmm. Now similarly, uh, queer viewers are also not a monolith What offends one person will be cathartic or liberating for another Those who find some kind of relief in spatterpunk uh, may hate the gothic, for example Um, And those who are repelled by body horror may love films of creeping dread or teen horror So there's no one way of going about
1: it yeah the point is that no one is actually wrong because it's subjective um and as always the dragons do encourage friendly vigorous and respectful debate you don't have to love someone's opinion to consider it
0: yes and finally not everyone's experience with horror as a genre is positive um some viewers are drawn to horror not out of morbid fascination or love of the genre or catharsis but because they are struggling with something very painful within themselves uh we are not in any way advocating using horror as a form of
1: psychological self-harm. Yes. So, I mean, if you find that you're... This is very difficult to phrase because it's not something I've encountered personally, but I do know of people who've done this. If you find that you're you're watching and re-watching a film almost as if you're punishing yourself, um, it might be better to, if you possibly can, find someone to talk to. And yes. Perhaps just give yourself a little break with that one
0: and if you're doing Um, it because you think you should be getting something out of it which everyone else is getting out of it but you're not then you might just be one of those people who it doesn't resonate with you're not wrong you're not queering wrong or whatevering wrong uh because of that you can just not like something that's okay
1: yeah okay so uh, the big question before we get going really is is being queer and liking horror counterintuitive
0: yes i mean it can seem somewhat strange that so many horror fans are lgbtq plus after all horror as a genre has traditionally not really treated queer people or people of color uh, or in fact women in general particularly well so why do kind of minority groups sort of
1: Find themselves drawn towards it. Yeah. The thing is, it seems to be a very surface level interpretation, which again doesn't mean it's wrong. Um, and it is broadly true that yes, horror as a genre hasn't traditionally treated those groups of people very well. Um, but there's a big discussion here about taking power back via horror, a horror genre rather, and what horror can offer. So um, that's what this discussion's about. Yes so we're gonna begin with our creature feature
0: uh, why queers love horror now we've all seen the clips if not the actual films those classic black and white monster flicks and their Technicolor remakes King Kong with a captured blonde bride climbing the Empire State Building, the creature from the Black Lagoon creeping from the water to better see the beautiful swimmer, the werewolf in the wolfman who can only be held still and reminded of his humanity by the voice of his beloved. Ah yes, monster love.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What all these creatures have in common is that they represent a non-traditional non-normative pairing, so the subtext is supposed to be, that obviously the hinted at romance is perverse. It could never work. Perhaps that on the human side it's not even consensual.
0: Yes. However, no matter what the Hayes codes set out to achieve, most of these films do not read as horrific for any of those particular reasons. Um there's almost always a sense that the human normal component of the pairing is grief stricken when the creature is inevitably destroyed
1: yeah and if you're sort of looking askance at whatever device is currently playing this podcast right now um we invite you to watch some of these old films go and check out some hammer horror and some of the you know older stuff um and then tell us there isn't a very strong subversive element that kind of rejects the prescribed heteronormative relationships yeah, um, And obviously they're products of their time So if you watch some of the really old black and white ones They really do seem to be rejecting the rigid structure of uh, the male-female married relationship
0: Yes, um, and even though this sort of this monster sort of human relationship never works out It is painted as tragic, yes. not as horrific Yeah, very um, much so We then obviously get into the whole Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein thing.
1: Yeah. Now, leaving aside a lot of the subtext from Mary Shelley's sci-fi horror classic, and looking at the campy horror films, I hope you know what I mean by campy, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) created from the idea, they encapsulate perfectly the sense of otherness that most queer people experience at some point during their lives. Um, Bride of... you know, For example, I think the old Frankenstein films, a lot of the ones with Boris Karloff and some of the others... Um, they kind of, you feel sorry for the monster. You are sympathizing you are literally sympathizing with the devil. Basically, he's supposed to be the villain, and yet you care about him because he's an outcast, because he's different, and you know everyone else is grabbing their torches and pitchforks, etc. Um, it, it's such a common image. It's it's so much in the zeitgeist that now it, you know, things take the piss out of it in, in sort of children's films and things like that yeah and then absolutely. then you've got bride of frankenstein which goes even further and pokes fun at the idea that a normal romantic pairing is desirable at all because she's literally created in a somewhat sort of freakish fashion for him mm-hmm. um you, you know we're not we haven't got time to really sort of completely dissect the films right down to the nth degree but if that's something you want then let us know perhaps madeline and i can do a buddy watch
0: yeah uh. absolutely um And the fact is that this is not a new idea either. Uh, We're not obviously focusing on films and stuff like that. But, um, you know, if we kind of draw back on sort of Frankenstein and and this idea, the idea that Frankenstein himself is more the monster than the creature, um, and that we should feel some sympathy for the creature, that the creature might very well have been made into a villain rather than be born as a villain. Um, is interesting. And we'll talk about villains a little bit later on. Um, but certainly this kind of this monstrousness and this desire for connection speaks to, I think, a lot of minority people who have felt ostracized by society um, and have been put into situations where they feel as if any affection they do feel, any desire they do feel is perverse.
1: Yeah definitely um there's a great filk song by Sean Maguire called creature feature mm-hmm. and I- each verse it, it takes the it takes a creature from the black lagoon it takes a werewolf um and it kind of takes this sort of phantom at the opera type creature and um in each verse it, it it's all about how the creature is is approaching you know the beautiful woman who's on her own um and she's screaming because it's a monster coming towards her. Um, but the the creature's actually misunderstood. And it's things like, He knows that he'll be faithful if she'll only be his wife. Um, but she screams when he approaches. It's the story of my life. And it's and when she was asked about the song, she said, Well, you know, this this song I wrote in my sort of late teens, early twenties on you know i was kind of just discovering the fact that i was bisexual at the time and i think mm. everyone at some point feels like they might be the monster from the monster movie when they're trying to approach someone regardless of what their sexuality is
0: yeah absolutely and they feel as if they're they're very valid feelings um you know if you're a teenager and you happen to be gay and and you're in a changing room or something like that you know you might sort of look up catch the sight of someone i say changing room it doesn't have to be a changing room, it could be anywhere changing rooms tend to be one of those places where um it's it feels the most wrong to even sort of catch a glimpse of somebody else even if it's not you know with any kind of intention or anything like that um and you can feel dirty and bad and terrible and as if you are the epitome of of sort of monstrous and that people would turn against you if they caught you being a normal teenager being a normal human being essentially
1: in fact i'll do you one further and say uh, all girls school and the fact that two-thirds of my class at least were sort of all experimenting together Mm. and it was fine everybody knew i'm sure some of the teachers knew it was happening all everybody kind of knew it was happening and you know there were giggles and what have you but it was all fine as long as you confined it to the fact that you were practicing because there were no males available and i yeah. am absolutely certain that some of the girls were kind of like yeah yeah i'm just practicing and it's it was actually kind of like um but no i'm not really and this is really really awful because i'm being offered what i actually want but i'm having to accept it under the guise of not really wanting it
0: if that makes sense absolutely yeah um and so i think that that is just something it's it's the queer experience of feeling sort of left out um and not only feeling left out but feeling monstrous um and what's interesting is that we actually have sort of started to see horror fiction sort of reverse that and play around with that in in things like the shape of water where the woman and the monster do get together at the end you know
1: yeah yeah definitely (laughs) um okay um body horror versus real life now (laughs) The human body is a wonderful and weird machine. Uh, sometimes that machine goes wrong in a spectacular and gruesome way. Um, mm. Over Christmas, I had a well. In fact, I had a very red Christmas. Uh, my body decided to spontaneously evacuate just over one third of its hydraulic system in an extremely messy way. Um, and it, it's it's bad when that happens. It turns out losing that amount of blood's really, really bad. Yes. So yes, it um, is. I. I th- sort of apologised in the book that I finished writing just after this happened because so much of my experience this this very localised personal experience of body horror crept into the narrative because of that so I can absolutely see why body horror um and sort of goes hand in hand with the sense of feeling monstrous Um, basically the point is most of us will feel trapped by our bodies at some point whether that's illness injury age, puberty, or just feeling like we do not fit in, um, yeah. that we are the creature in the creature feature, as we were saying, and that yeah. we are somehow loathsome, particularly yeah. to the objects of our affections.
0: Absolutely. It's normal to feel that at some point. Um, it is part of processing whatever we're going through. Um, however, however,
1: <laughs> I tried to, to say however theory? and <laughs> <laughs> often,
0: <Yeah. laughs> however, it often goes further for queer people. Um, it can be that because you desire a non-normative relationship which may or may not include non-traditional sex that you get an element of that body horror and the body horror can also be extended by the fact that you might want a non-normative relationship but you might actually be wary or sort of uncertain or even disgusted by the the idea of of non-traditional sex you know, there are plenty of queer people who actually uh, don't want to have sex or don't want to have penetrative sex um, or who are asexual etc but i mean being asexual is being part of the queer community so that can all bleed into it um you know body horror is literally a horror of the things a biological body is capable of um and most of our biological processes are hidden. And unless we're into science, most of us only have a vague idea of how things work. So suddenly being confronted with normal biological processes can kind of
1: be quite horrifying. Yeah, I would absolutely in- endorse that that sentiment. Um, and, you know, that's before you factor in the genre horror element so i mean in horror we see humans metamorphos- uh, metamorphosing sorry <laughs> into creatures um so you've got the werewolf also, also into insects have you ever seen jeff Goldblum's the fly because that is a super gross yes, film it is horrifying <laughs> um we see genetic experiments going horribly wrong we see alien presences subsuming human biological matter and making facsimiles of us so if you've watched the thing Mm. Uh, where essentially this alien presence is dug up from under the ice in antarctica seriously never dig up anything out Ant- antarctica because nothing good is going to come of that yeah and global warming is uh... <laughs> it, it's kind of a and then there were none sort of scenario where this the crew of this um this outpost are just being picked off one by one and you don't know who you can trust anymore because this thing can sort of mimic you um, yeah and it is you know literally the thing they don't know what it is but it seems to take on board it, yeah. it, it's alien to earth it takes on human matter and then it sort of mimics the people that you thought you could trust and that mm-hmm. is you know there's a full-on body horror element there as well it's pretty damn gross yeah absolutely um you know then there's the whole slasher movie
0: in spatterpunk subgenre. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: um, I have to say, gen- generally they don't do a lot for me because, I and I I do genuinely think this is because I spent so many years working for the NHS and I've seen it in real life, so I'm just like, mm. I can't suspend disbelief now. Um, but mm. a lot of people love it because they find it very cathartic. Um, yeah. And I have to say, sometimes what you see in slasher films, etc., is um, it is basically... <laughs> you see often straight couples being sliced up with machetes and stuff yeah i'm not saying that's necessarily a good feeling to have but sometimes seeing that literally being erased from the screen by the monster <laughs> um there there is a catharsis to be had from that i've I've read a lot of um essays from from other queer authors and things who've said yeah, I'm not necessarily proud of feeling this way, but it 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 was something that really helped me personally process things when I was going through the oh god, do I tell my parents because they're evangelicals, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um and there is, you know, a darker element as well. I'm mean, not that that isn't dark, but there's an even darker element which is sadly a huge part of the queer experience, which is um uh, abuse. Um and particularly sexual abuse, um, you know, a lot of queer people are are vulnerable to being abused, particularly uh, trans individuals. Um, they're very vulnerable to being um, both physically and sexually abused. Um, and I think that for some people, Uh, that can make kind of body horror feel very very sort of inaccessible it it can be very triggering and for other people it actually can provide this form of catharsis um, both by providing a medium in which to explore the kind of the experience that you've gone through release those emotions and then kind of close the door and say right that's done I've been able to kind of let these emotions which are just simmering constantly inside of me out in a healthy way by being scared Um, but also by again sort of finding yourself in the sort of the position of the ostracized character the monster etc and eliminating particularly in certain things the the kind of the jockish sort of characters or, or the certain characters yeah, who which we'll you might onto. have felt victimized about but which we will get on to <laughs> when we talk about villains and stuff like that in just a but, moment <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but yeah i think that it's again it's something that we do need to consider um and for me personally body horror is not doesn't work for me i find it triggering i don't tend to particularly like it particularly in in, in the bigger ex- sort of extremes um but it it can be a sort of a useful and interesting tool um in a variety of ways for different
1: people yeah i mean it doesn't do an awful lot for me um it, i don't like gore for gore's sake not because i find it gross or anything but just because i find it unnecessary and, you know me when i find something unnecessary in the story i start to lose interest so that's usually yeah. where i'm coming from um, but you know i can see how other people find it liberating so you know being queer can often mean feeling that your body has its own biological agenda and that you're just along for the ride or the show <laughs> um things that are ick when you're straight can become i presume and as, I, as i've read nigh on traumatizing when you're trans for example so um say you're trans male and um you're you know what you're engaging with is something like um a thing where oh god speech i want to say species is it species there's a film there's a disturbing film where a genetic experiment goes wrong becomes sentient and then there's like an enforced pregnancy basically any enforced pregnancy thing is like really bad as far as i'm concerned and i don't like it but i can see how someone would watch it and find it triggering and someone would watch it and think that's kind of how I feel I I do kind of feel represented by that and find it cathartic as well if you see what I mean
0: yeah particularly if basically the way it's being framed is as something which is bad yeah Um, I mean I I, for example Alien you know Alien has a lot of themes within it about um, you know sexual abuse Uh, for both men and for women Um, And it's very, very kind of terrifying. And for some people, they might find that very triggering. For others, they might actually find that an experience which they have not been allowed to depict as horror, which maybe they've had to kind of be quiet about or or stuff like that, being depicted in this way, being, it, it feels like a release like an explanation, um, like a chance to actually see yourself and your experience being represented in a way that other people can understand, in a way that sort of actually reflects how you felt.
1: Yeah, um, I just want to quickly mention the blob. (laughs) Yes. Uh, because i read i'm I'm really sorry i'm gonna have to look up the title because it's gone out of my head just blame my age but basically there was a really intelligent essay um by um an an author uh, who who defines themselves as agender so not non-binary as such but just without gender at all where where they don't conform and the reason that they felt very much like they could identify with the blob the remake, not the original black and white film Um, the remake is the fact that the blob is there it exists and it doesn't really care about how you set up society and it's just got this ability to stop society in its tracks and absorb everything (laughs) and how this um, author found that to be very empowering imagery when they felt that their body was you know really letting them down in a number of ways medically which was part of this essay if i find the title i'll I'll add it to this this podcast episode um description so that people can go and read it because it is a really intelligent take
0: yeah that sounds really really
1: interesting um so anyway little wonder based on this discussion that horror which shows transformation as both gross but ultimately very powerful um should attract queer fans yes so now we're going to get on to villains, <laughs>
0: which we've been teasing. <laughs> um, you know, horror is not usually coy about who you're supposed to root for, even if it does sometimes sort of deliberately mislead.
1: Yeah, um, depending on the subgenre, it's usually clear who the bad guy is fairly early on, even if that antagonist is nebulous or undefined, so for example, a haunted house.
0: Yeah. So if you are queer and there is no hero for you to identify with, then chances are you might find yourself bonding with the villain, whether that's uh, serial killer Jason or Michael Myers
1: or the possessing demon in The Exorcist. (laughs) Honestly, I would have thought that, that this just goes to show how different perspectives are. because. Um, The Exorcist was one of those films that I saw it when I was 18 and they re-released it in the cinema and even back then they re-released it with a good half an hour cut out of it so some of the story didn't make any sense but it didn't matter because it was so fucking horrific and because I was still emerging from the good little Catholic girl thing so Mm. it it had extra potency because of that and I remember sort of being like how can anybody identify with this, this creature possessing this little girl but then again i've read things by other queer authors who've said actually the idea of you know the fact that i don't fit in and being this possessing monster that just takes over this this very normal representation of what it means to fit in i.e a little white girl in a privileged family Mm -hmm. was a tremendously empowering thing so i'm like okay that's kind of gross and you do you um but i do see your point
0: Yeah. I mean, there is something to be said about how many times do, uh, you know, queer children um, basically express the fact that they can't really be their true selves in front of their parents because every time they try um their parents act like it's an aberration like they're acting out of normal like they're going through a phase but soon they will return to being what they should be and the queer experience is a big part of that i think um and i mean not to sort of glorify him because i think there's a whole we've talked about him before but alistair crowley um our problematic, our, our problematic fave. Our problematic fave. Basically was called a monster by his mother. And he he just took on that moniker. Basically, he he sort of went, yes, I am going... To, you have called me a monster and I have decided to be unapologetically unapologi- myself. Um, uh, now, we've again, we've talked about it before, so you can check back to last year where we talk about... Crowley and all of his antics Um, (laughs) but uh, there is something again to be said he was he was queer um, among other things and there is something to be said about the fact that if you continue to call someone a monster and you continue to ostracize them then that is kind of something that they will then identify with and that is a form of empowerment
1: yeah, I mean, this is a fairly simplistic way of putting it, but if society makes you an outsider, you will become their nightmare. And that's, yes. that comes across a lot in horror. Yep. Um, however, as we discussed with our Moral Outlaw episode, becoming the bad guy and allying yourself with a powerful entity which shakes up the norm and challenges traditional systems is a powerfully subversive thing. It may also be cathartic since, uh, you know, as we said before, in many of these films, the villain is destroying heterosexual characters and couples, often in very gory ways.
0: Yeah, Um, they're essentially breaking up the system, the the traditional norm. And obviously this is almost always thwarted, but a lot of horror has also incorporated this sort of this creepy sense where at the end we get this idea that things are not fully over
1: yeah and obviously we have to say at this point that horror films in general certainly the earlier ones did tend to punish any kind of extramarital sex yeah so any characters engaging in that um, we're not really looking at that but we are aware that it is there and it's not really a desirable message and I think horror films have definitely changed a fair bit since then but you know just to say yes we are aware of it we're not ignoring the elephant in the room on that one yeah absolutely okay so let's open the puzzle box haha <laughs> all my Clive Barker <laughs> fans stand up <laughs> um, yeah I'm going to talk briefly about Clive Barker in a minute um, basically uh, strange enough films which s- spirit the characters to some kind of nightmare realm or offer a glimpse of a monstrous sub are the gold standard for challenging the norm in horror
0: Yeah. Now, under those circumstances, there is no norm, and the inside-out realm in which the characters now discover themselves as they battle fear is the new norm.
1: Yeah, this tends to lead to something that is both metaphorically and quite often literally um, sexually liberating, and this is where we bring in Clive Barker. I keep almost saying Clive Cussler. Clive Cussler wrote sort of thrillers. (laughs) clive Clive cussler would be raising his head going hang on a minute i didn't write about a nightmare bondage realm what the fuck are you talking about (laughs) put me back (laughs) clive barker author of the books of blood um quite frankly i don't love his writing i'm really sorry i just don't really gel with it but i do appreciate his vision clive barker was unapologetically out and gay yeah and his horror is genuinely horrifying it does incorporate a lot of body horror Um, when you look at things like the books of blood and hellraiser there is a very deliberate sexual element as well Um, we'll talk briefly about hellraiser hellraiser um, in very broad strokes you have a group of people you have a puzzle box which will open a portal to a nightmare realm Uh, this nightmare realm is peopled with obviously you know pinhead and um all his little (laughs) all his little bondage drones as well i can't remember the names now (laughs) but it's it's it looks very disturbing and then you take a moment and you step back and you think this is just a bondage dungeon with dark lighting (laughs) this is essentially what Hellraiser is about Um, what it's it's saying is you know take you away to a a realm where pain is pleasure pleasure is pain etc and Mm -hmm. yes there's there's disturbing torture and everything but it's all bonded together with this sort of very very non-traditional normative sex um, non-normative sex rather Um, it's I'm not gonna say like BDSM and things are like the sole province of queer couples because they're not mm. you know that says that's a separate thing as well and obviously I'm yeah. not gonna say anything one way or another or kink shame I honestly don't think there's a problem with anything generally as long as that you know you have consenting adults yeah. people who are able to consent etc yeah. um, but that's where I stand on it it's like you do you have fun be safe Um, But I do find it interesting when uh, authors and film directors and things weave these things in, because the only way that they could kind of at the time get these things out there was by making them horrific. And yet the people who had those particular desires and needed those kind of itches scratched were the ones who went, I get it. Whereas a lot of people are like, oh, my God, it's horrific, it's torture, ah, I my eyes and look away kind of thing. Um, and I think some of those people, if they went back and re things now, might go, oh, because I have to say that's kind of what happened with me with Hellraiser. It was mm-hmm. like, saw it way too young as a teenager, and then years and years later watched it again. It's like, this isn't actually scary. And then went, oh, I can't believe I missed that, <laughs> you know? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that you've kind of hit the nail on the head of one of the the sort of the big components of why um, horror fiction can sort of really attract a queer audience. Um, And we've talked about in the past how we have sort of of queer sort of coded villains and things like that. Um, But I do think it's because in a lot of horror, it was... A space that allowed writers um, and directors and stuff like that to actually discuss issues which no one wanted to talk about in public. And a lot of these particular issues did relate to experiences that minority people had. Um, we see that now in, in a sort of a lot of modern uh, kind of horror, like Get Out and stuff like that, where they're exploring. Um, the sort of the lived horror and realities of uh being black um in america and stuff like that uh again not necessarily 100 percent realistic but in other ways very very realistic um and it alien
1: a, it taps into the spirit of the thing doesn't it
0: yeah it really does um and again alien um which sort of has this uh, this
1: theme of sort of sexual abuse and and attack and violence. Yeah, see, um, um, I think that's definitely an eye of the beholder thing because I've watched Alien and all the films actually many times. I definitely get the sort of the body horror and the forced impregnation kind of thing. It doesn't read to me like sexual abuse, it's just kind of like something does doesn't see you as as real. You you're you're literally yeah. kind of biological matter used for breeding
0: no i i 100 I uh sort of uh, get that i know that the directors and stuff like that particularly with the art style and stuff like that they were trying to evoke sort of fallacies and things like that and, well, and you can and, absolutely and,
1: see that with the face
0: yeah you, you <laughs> can and so i mean like and this again goes to show that different people will get kind of different things out of it which is why some people might find it disturbing in one way some people might find it disturbing in another way either way it's succeeded um but what I mean is that we then also see the queer experience, the queer sort of experience of being othered, the queer experience of, of feeling like a monster, the refreshing sense of sort of f- succumbing to being a monster, no longer having to just be good and quiet and putting up with it, all of the anger and resentment that goes along with that being exercised through horror instead. Um, and so I i really do think that yeah a lot of the time we do see these things put in because horror was the platform in which to discuss them in much the same way that the the gothic
1: was yeah definitely i'm really trying to remember um the name there's a it's quite a shonky kind of filmed thing Mm. but it is clive barker i want to say nightbreed i think it might be nightbreed um, but please correct me if I'm wrong, because I might have the wrong film. And essentially, it's it's not it. They're, they're treated almost like you know the inverted commas, circus freaks, and it's this community of monsters, and they live on the fringes of society. Mm-hmm. And you know, horrible stuff happens. Obviously, there's murders and stuff. Um, but there is a sense of tremendous freedom in this group being together. And I think the main character in the end joins this group of monsters. Um, as I recall. And it it's not really a great film. It's clearly very... It was made for, like, 2 pounds fifteen a bag of chips kind of thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but in terms of, of, of the themes it deals with, it was really intelligent. And even though I didn't really like the film, I was kind of like, this has... You know, there's an echo of, of something this is trying to say inside me in the sense of... Um, Maybe you're one of the monsters too, if that's if you see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, maybe we're all monsters. (laughs) Maybe we're all monsters, but but also, you know, you're not gonna fit in in the you know, the suited the suited masses as it were. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's look at a few movie examples that probably deserve a little bit of discussion for the rest of what we're doing. Well, we've got to talk about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. We do have to talk about that. Um, I want everyone to bear in mind it, that this came out in 1975 so it was amazingly subversive especially yeah. considering the time it came out it came out during the time when it was okay to make jokes about black queer and black queer, black people, queer people and women on family game shows and yeah. on general comedy type things this is the time of it, I, I, honestly go away go look on YouTube, go and look at British comedy for around the 1970s and be as horrified by what flew at the time. Yeah. There's the true horror. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, obviously, I just skated in under the wire in 1979, so I don't really remember the 70s that well, strangely enough. But I do think it was incredibly... Chal- you know, it challenged a lot of the status quo. This was such a scandalous thing for Susan Sarandon, who had come from a very strong christian catholic i believe background Mm. to have got involved in and i don't think her family approved all that much either um and i realize that people do have issues with the rocky horror picture show and i'll I'll go into that in a moment but in terms of (laughs) there is something really delightful about this weird campy horror gothic extravaganza sci-fi film whereby a, a, a very sweet pure heteronormative you know they're almost like chocolate box pretty kind of um, heteronormative couple get their their straightness exploded by the, this anything goes kind type, type of sex alien <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> I really couldn't have described it better myself <laughs> uh, and I think you know one of the things that people bring up about this is consent um, and I want to say yes I see your point I would also like to add you know the the following rebuttal and that is what you could actually film at the time so you a you would have had to play it for laughs which they absolutely did um which is why you get the silhouettes what it's why it's so funny when rocky goes to brad to be quite frank for some reason that's that's so much more scandalizing at the time than him trying to seduce janet um and the fact that brad's kind of into it brad stops and has a cigar afterwards (laughs) This is not somebody who's been traumatised. I'd also add that it kind of hits the Gone with the Wind thing, whereby I don't know if anyone remembers this, but at the end of... It's sort of two-thirds of the way through Gone with the Wind. You know, Scarlett O'Hara says, well, my waist is not 18 and a half inches anymore. I don't want any more children. I'm going to shut my husband out of the bedroom. He says, I could divorce you for this. And she says, well, go on then. So he's like, okay, fine. I'll live sexless with you and I'll have a mistress as you do. Um but he loves her and she does love him she just hasn't figured it out yet in the book she can't um margaret mitchell could not say you know scarlett ohara really wanted to shag his brains out or you know the, the equivalent at the time because mm-hmm. that would have painted her as being a wanton and a character who was completely unsympathetic she could yeah. not show a woman wanting sex in that way and that bled into the film and you know obviously the Hays Code and things like that could not show a woman desperately wanting sex even to her own husband so when he kind of sweeps her up and carries her off to the bedroom and she's kind of like no no it's about as as genuine as as Alison in the Miller's Tale saying oh I'll say out harrow and alas Um, which she doesn't say she just lets the bloke carry on copping a field kind of thing Um, I realise that to audiences now that sort of thing that doubling is confusing because what they want is a clear stated intention of consent on both sides yeah but that wasn't always possible that wasn't possible in books and it wasn't possible in film in 1975 in this sort of film they could not have Brad say actually you are kind of hot in those suspenders so yeah I'm curious yeah let's do this Yeah, any more than they could have Janet say that so this is not an issue of consent this is an issue of the time frame that this was filmed in I mean, it's not set in the 70s. I think it's set a couple of decades earlier as well, which further compounds the issue.
0: Yeah, 100%. Yeah. It's why context is very, very important.
1: Yeah, so I think people are... I get... I mean, it can sense a really important issue, and I completely agree with that. I just think we need a broader reading for for materials that are older. It's It's the baby-it's-cold-outside thing again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, the next one is Jennifer's body.
1: Yeah, now, I won't go into too much detail, but this is, like, the quintessential bisexual um, horror experience. Um, Check out our our episode on bisexuality in speculative fiction if you're interested. Mm. Um, (laughs) Basically, you've got Jennifer, who is this beautiful girl, and have best friend since childhood, Needy. And they're kind of obsessed with each other, but haven't really, you know, you always feel through the film that they haven't really admitted they have feelings for each other. And Jennifer's doing the thing whereby she's seeing a lot of the, you know, having blossomed into this beautiful young woman, she's seeing lots of the, the jocks and things at, at um, high school. And Needy isn't quite as immediately conventionally attractive so she's sort of holding back and she doesn't really necessarily approve of what jennifer's doing um part of her understands but part of her i think is maybe a bit jealous as well yeah and the jocks kind of go decided to kidnap jennifer for a sorority (laughs) sorority fraternity they're not sorority that would be a very confusing different film (laughs) the jocks turned out to be girls um Remake Uh, Anyway, for a fraternity thing And they're basically going to sacrifice a virgin to a demon Unfortunately, Jennifer is not a virgin So when they sacrifice her She comes back And she comes back wrong because the demon's possessing her And yet, even so Her love for her best friend, Needy Is is, is still kind of there Mm -hmm. And everything goes on from there And it's a case of In the end, Needy loves Jennifer enough to actually kill her but it's incredibly um sort of the the sexual subtext between the two girls is really there if you know if, you know if you are bi or pan or whatever and you you're looking you're not necessarily even looking for it you'd recognize it if you see what i mean yeah where but yeah. i think it kind of went over straight audiences heads but it's really really bi <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, uh the haunting of Bly Manor. Um we're talking about the uh the fairly recent Netflix adaptation, aren't we?
1: Yeah, we are. Did you watch that in the end? I did watch that in the end. Yes. I thought you did cuz I was that because I, I sent you one, I sent Madeline a message going, oh my God, I've teared up, I've completely choked up, I've watched the last episode, and you're like, oh my God, what happens? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. The Haunting of Blind Manor is, is a genuinely quite creepy ghost story, and it's based on the turn of the screw, um, but it's been modernised, and I say modernised as in it's been set in the early 80s. <laughs> yes. Um, Now, it's very interesting because
0: uh, The Turn of the Screw, obviously, one of its its themes is the concept of sexual repression, causing delusions, um, among other things. Um, We we can't really get into that. Uh, But The Haunting of Bly Manor basically took that um, and twisted it around, where... The, repress- the, 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 sort of the sexual feelings which are being repressed are actually to do with a woman who has been closeted as a lesbian uh, basically all of her life. Um, and at the moment where she tried to be open, it resulted in this terrible tragedy, which is now haunting her. Um, and yet we still get this wonderful queer love story throughout the whole thing
1: yeah yeah it's really really beautifully done the character work is amazing um you know it's better than the turn of the screw to be quite honest
0: yeah I mean I'd, I'd love to talk about the turn of the screw in general at some point so you know maybe we'll 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 do look at that um in the future but um yeah the, the haunting of Bly Manor really did modernize it and and took this idea of these themes which um are kind of outdated in a lot of ways and reapplied them in a way that feels very relevant and realistic uh, I think for a modern audience it's
1: like what's really sad is the main character who goes to be a nanny at Blight Manor um mm-hmm. to these two children um you know she keeps seeing this Spirit with glasses, and it's the glasses seem to be reflecting light. And as things progress, you realise that that was her fiance.
0: Yeah.
1: And she'd just, you know, he'd been her childhood companion to the point where she was expected for him and her to be childhood sweethearts. And then it got to the oh God, we're, we're adults, and they actually expect us to go through and get married. And I think I'm gay, you know, and. She feels really responsible for his death because they have an argument and he just stepped out in traffic. Sorry for the spoilers, guys. Yeah. Um, but at no point do you ever feel she didn't love him. She just didn't desire him sexually. Yeah. She, she did love him. She, he was one of her dearest friends. She just didn't want him in the way he wanted her.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And one of the big things was that she didn't want to keep lying to him as well. Yeah. You know, it was for her, but it was also for him uh that she sort of she came out um and it's it is a very very good adaptation um there are parts which and we've discussed it in the past which were probably a little bit could have used some work but in terms of sort of a horror story um and one which will be very attractive to queer audiences i highly recommend it
1: yeah um an american werewolf in london now obviously there is a romance a very very quick but very passionate romance in the middle of this um, but and, it, and it's a heterosexual one but weirdly because the romance incorporates someone who's been transformed into a werewolf and is going to go through this cycle of killing for three days every month mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of queer subtext in there or at least it feels like there is for me because you start off with these two American students who are backpacking through Yorkshire <laughs> Except it's not Yorkshire, it's Wales, because apparently Wales looked more like Yorkshire than than Yorkshire did. Yep. (laughs) The whole folklore aspect is based on the Flixton werewolf. And uh, they obviously turn up in the quintessential, uh, the slaughtered lamb tavern with its pentagram painted on the wall, etc. And they're just like, okay, the locals are really weird. And they're like, stay off the mall, lads, etc. And they they go out on the moor, obviously, and it starts raining. And um, then they hear howling. They're like, what could possibly be out on the moor like this on a full moon night? Blah, 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 blah. Um, One of them dies and one of them gets bitten by the werewolf. And he gets transferred to a hospital in London where he meets the nurse who looks after him. And when he's no longer a patient, she invites him back to her house. And things take their natural progression. Um, But he's haunted by the continually decaying specter of his best friend um which is a bit of queer subtext for a start it's kind of like you just lost the person you were closest to in the world Mm. and they keep popping back up when you started a romance with someone new and they're in a worse state every time you see them and they're telling you that you are going to be a murderer as well you're gonna so that to me it there's that. There's also the body horror element because it's got some very painful graphic scenes of transformation. Yeah. When he's going through the change into becoming a werewolf. And then there is also the whole creature feature element at the end where she calls his name and he stops mid attack for a moment because something inside him is still human, still recognises her, and it gives the police time to shoot him. Yeah so once again you get that whole sort of this romance is never going to work out because one of you is a monster thing so again you might not be looking for it but if there is something internal that reflects that there's a lot of queer subtext yeah in my opinion
0: yeah and the fact is that we we also have to recognize um the effect of the of the aids crisis in horror um
1: i mean that came no, not significantly saying... after american werewolf
0: no no yeah no no I, I recognize i'm not saying that's the case with american werewolf in london uh, <laughs> obviously um but it, it's something that I, I sort of do feel like we we kind of need to sort of touch on in that you will see sort of horror stories which kind of do evoke that that sort of sense and a lot of and werewolves being used to sort of represent that um we saw it obviously um uh, kind of done a little bit with sort of JK. Rowling and stuff like that. Um, whether she did it well or not is a is a whole other thing. Um, but it is this again, this exploration of an experience which was had by a large number of the queer community who were just left to sort of deal with it on their own for an incredibly long time and were alienated and sort of put out to be monsters um, and were treated as other just for being queer um, regardless of whether or not they had contracted HIV or not and the whole kind of the moral sort of element of that as well um, of well if you've contracted it you deserved it because you're out having sex etc Um, So it is worth, uh, I forgot to mention it earlier on, so I just thought I'd put it in there as well, is that things like that do also play, have come to play a part in horror. And for some people that has been done very distastefully. um, And for other people, they feel that they've actually been represented and seen during a time where they were sort of abandoned. Okay, uh, next one is Halloween
1: yeah um kind of a this was going to be called the babysitter murders and they changed it to halloween and you know that was a much better marketing decision um i think it was jamie lee curtis's first major role as well but if you haven't seen halloween um you have serial killer michael myers not to be confused with mike myers um and, (laughs) and his um basically rubber mask and and uh machete and on halloween night he goes around and he finds uh, teenagers who are misbehaving and murders them basically it is basically the plot except that you have J- jamie lee curtis's character and she is a good girl so unfortunately we are leaning on that you know whether you're engaging in premarital sex or not or not scenario yeah. um however it does really good stuff with the whole final girl trope um and some of the later films that they made actually develop her character even further and it's really really interesting what they do but i'm quoting or rather i'm paraphrasing what other people have said about how halloween for them was full of queer subtext is the fact that you start off with michael myers as being a boy and seeing his sister for some reason sitting in front of a mirror topless and brushing her hair having just said goodbye to a boyfriend um, and being so offended by this whole thing that he stabs his teenage sister to death, um, and it, it, the whole thing it, it goes all the way through. There's a lot of half-naked women, obviously for titillation purposes, in um, in terms of filming. But what I found interesting was that you know quite a lot of <laughs> quite a lot of trans people have said that they actually found this this monster character who was killing this female, very obviously female body. To, to be strangely liberating for them personally and then others mm. who who are like, yeah, this is this is hetero you know, heterosexual normal inverted commas, sex being pushed in our faces and we've got someone going around basically like an avenging angel, <laughs> killing yeah. these people off, destroying it, smashing this and challenging this standard. Um, and all anyone can do is run from terror and they're still going to be caught and it doesn't matter if you shoot this guy he will get up and he will be gone and he will be back next Halloween yeah. so I thought that was an interesting perspective I'm, it's not one I share but I do think it's an interesting one
0: yeah um, it really does go to show how different sort of experiences and stuff like that really can change how you understand or view a film
1: yes. um, Jaws <laughs> Now, look, I wouldn't necessarily have put this as horror, but other people have. And I suppose having this massive shark that seems to be sentient enough to come after you specifically is kind of a bit scary. It was certainly a scary film when it first came out when I was a child. Mm. Scary enough that my parents were like, no, she can't watch that. Um, I would have been like sick. So maybe they had a point. (laughs) <laughs> in fact I would have been younger but by the time it was on video video films took a lot longer to get to the family screen in those days they really did <laughs> anyway um, Jaws is a boy's own adventure it, you know most of the characters who have anything at all interesting to do are male and weirdly it kind of does some of the same stuff Moby Dick does there's yep. one part in particular where yes it's you know it's male love it's male friendship it's the band of brothers thing but there's two men who are arguing with each other about who has had the toughest time on the sea and one of them suddenly like puts his leg up on the table to show his scars and so the other man's like oh you think that's a scar and he gets his leg out and puts his leg on the table to show his scars and suddenly they're comparing different bared bits of their body to each other and this argument finally ends in laughter and acceptance of each other hmm There's other bits in the film as well, but I kind of agree with people who said actually, there's a lot of queer subtext in that.
0: Yeah, it's, it is interesting, because obviously, weirdly enough, Jaws is kind of like a horror western. People go, well, Jaws isn't a western, but it is actually a western. Stranger comes to town, starts causing trouble. Um, it's <laughs> just a shark.
1: Yeah, it's a shark. shark yeah, and a cowboy a hat. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah.
0: <laughs> Pretty sure Toy Story did that. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so they... <laughs> And you do kind of get a lot of homoerotic subtext in a lot of westerns as well. Uh, That's a whole other kettle of fish. Um, So yeah, I can totally see that. Um, The last one uh, is The Wicker Man.
1: Yeah, I kind of put this one in just to taste test it because I kind of see it and I kind of, and I'm also kind of, yeah, but it is very much about polarities as well. Um, i don't know if um, we're talking about the original wicker man not the remake with nicholas cage um, yeah. the original wicker man is very much someone who is a very buttoned up uh, white normal um, christian police officer goes to this remote scottish island to look for a missing child um, and he is faced with unhelpful locals and weirdness and strange little bits of folk horror and unsettling occurrences and in one case a a definite attempt at seduction uh, by a naked woman (laughs) yeah Um, all the way through and he is clearly out of his depth he doesn't know what he's doing he's in this community who act in ways that are just incomprehensible to him they're they're weird and they're sexually liberated in a way he finds both repellent and fascinating mm. um, and then obviously it ends with him being imprisoned in a huge wicker man which is then set on fire because he's sacrificed as the year king yes um, and I feel that the the sort of this is, this is kind of it falls into like the Clive Barker nightmare realm, oh my god it's actually a bondage dungeon kind of mind shift where it's like yeah nothing's normal here um but you could choose to join the new normal if you see what i mean and if you don't choose to join the new normal then okay by story narrativium type rules you're going to be destroyed
0: yeah it it is kind of it's refreshing in in a way where you, you it is just this this subversion of 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 reality whereby the one who's the outsider, the one who's the stranger, and the one who, again, doesn't actually prevail in the end, um, you know, is actually killed in the end, is representative of white heteronormativeness and and cis sexuality and and all that jazz. Cis sexuality makes no sense, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, so (laughs) I can totally see that so yeah um we've reached the end of our episode uh, but i mean what what are some of your favorites that you feel kind of touch on on sort of queerness in in some form or another
1: um i mean i've probably forgotten more than i've actually talked about here and you know mm. this is such a big topic we've probably we need to scratch the surface we could probably do an entire episode on each little subsection if we wanted to yeah um American Werewolf London is obviously an ongoing favourite. It has been since, since childhood for me. Mm. Um, and I love the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I, sometimes I say, I love the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's so much fun. I like to watch it every couple of years. And I will get really narrow-eyed looked, looks from people because <laughs> they've... I think they they're not necessarily wrong but they've kind of fallen into the camp of well this happens in that film and we don't like the way that happens ergo the entire film is of a boat, and how dare you mention it and i think there's room for differences of opinion on this one because i can see your point it's just i don't agree with it um i love it i think it did an awful lot and to be honest i think in some ways it probably did more for the whole normalization of, of depicting uh, queer encounters and non-traditional sex and things than, than many other films did um, yeah. and I loved The Haunting of Bly Manor uh, there aren't very many horror films where I'd go yeah that's a really beautiful love story but it is, it's a beautiful love story and a very creepy ghost story and um, you know, quite a disturbing look at human nature at the same time
0: <laughs> yeah I completely agree it's interesting for me because I am not a big fan of horror um That being said, you know, I do much prefer sort of, if I am going into horror, I prefer the the subgenres of gothic horror um, and ghost stories and also of um, folk horror. Um, I much prefer sort of insidious creepiness rather than uh, sort of body horror or or spatter or anything like that. That really doesn't work for me at all. Um, And so, you know, I would definitely agree with Bly Manor. And I think if I was to sort of say some of my my real favorites in terms of books, I'm much more likely to lean towards Frankenstein and Dracula, uh, but also The Woman in Black by Susan Hill, uh, which um, speaks to me in a lot of ways. um, And in which there is kind of this element of of punishing um, uh, heteronormativeness in it, where you have... um, Janice, uh, is it? Yeah, her name's Janice, Um, who basically has had a child out of wedlock. And, you know, because of society, society took that child away and then separated her from that child. And society has continued to punish her and basically say, this is how things should be done. Now, I don't really empathize with her. I think she's a terrible creature. Um, But there is something to be said about a story where there is this sort of inescapable punishment for sort of normal society. Um, And by that same token, another horror film that I did like when I was a kid was The Ring, the, the UK version.
1: That was such an arty film. I didn't find it scary, but I just in terms of being something that was visually kind of a feast, I really enjoyed that.
0: Yeah. And I was a kid when I saw it, I was quite young. And I mean, um, <laughs> I remember going to the cinema t- so that we could laugh at the second one. And we did we did laugh the whole way through because we were just taking the mick. But with the first one, um, there was something to be said about, it, it spoke to me as a young queer girl who was not actually out in that you have a story of a girl who has basically been disposed of by her parents because she isn't quite right. They've that she's evil, they sense that she's wrong. Um, and she is now doing whatever she can to make her story known. And it's not that I was necessarily, again, empathizing with the character, but there is something to be said about the situation of feeling as if parents who you might even still love or, or, or sort of society itself has kind of shut you up and basically refused to let you express yourself, refused to let you be who you, who you are. Um, and so you will basically try anything, including acting out and stuff like that, in order to be heard um, so maybe again that's projection which is entirely you know possible and, and probably quite likely um, but it did speak to me in that way I think as a child.
1: Yeah I think I've, um, I've I've seen other queer people talking about the ring and saying that they actually really identified with Samara as well
0: yeah yeah um, and also the fact that you have this main female character who is again in a slightly strange situation so, you know she's kind of split away from her from her husband or her boyfriend um and she's kind of one of the only people who sort of actually pursues it and figures it out and realises that there is someone who is lost there's a child who's been lost um, and cast away who is trying to speak out and of course the sad thing at the end is that isn't enough it isn't enough that she's been recognized by one person she needs to be seen by the whole world um so yeah okay well it is the end of our episode but before we go we have a highly unsuitable for the theme that we've talked about today (laughs) recommendation for you guys to really lighten it up
1: so jules yeah this (laughs) this is really light on horror elements i mean there are witches and and vampires and things in it but don't expect any big scares this is a cozy paranormal fantasy and it is so incredibly cute if you enjoyed things like legends and lattes or um, a Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking or Half a Soul or anything like that then you'll probably really love this and it's a really cute audiobook as well it's called The Only Purple House in Town by Anne ogire and it follows Iris who has never really fit in with her family of uh, psychic vampires as in she doesn't seem to draw energy from people the way they do they think she's kind of a cuckoo in the nest as in she came out a bit wrong um mm-hmm her father's a bit absent her mother clearly disapproves of her and iris screws everything up time and time again because she has no confidence but she's a lovely sunshiny type person and then her great-aunt dies and leaves her this house which is kind of dilapidated and um, is this peeling purple monstrosity in (laughs) another state entirely and iris is kind of at her wits end because she's sort of failed at yet another business venture so she goes to live in this house thinking she can let the rooms out and halfway through the whole process of getting people to come and live in this house with her she realizes that she's not letting the rooms out for as much money as she can get she's letting the rooms out to people who have limited other options and she sort of justifies it to herself with this idea that well, if they have limited options they're not going to leave her and lurch but actually yeah. she's got this real instinct for sort of sheltering and nurturing people who are lost like she is and it's just this really great um story of this found family coming together in this monstrosity of a house <laughs> Um, there's a and it's it's mixed age range as well so Iris is about 27 and there's more to her than meets the eye which I don't want to spoil and then there's Eli who's got a secret who um, needs to live in town sort of for a few months so he takes a room as well and then there's Henry Dale who is an older man who is really grumpy and crotchety and he snaps at everybody um, but Iris finds a place for him as well and he's like I'm fine as long as people leave me alone kind of thing but the reason he's like that is because he's all alone. He doesn't have anybody else. And he's lost everything. Mm. So he gets drawn in as well. And then there's an older, very bubbly, chatty woman who's divorced her husband and is determined to sample everything life has, has got. And it's kind of like, well, I'm in my 70s. I don't see the point in staying with my husband. I haven't wanted to be with him for decades now. And my children are 39 or 42. And by the way, I think I need to kiss lots more people because in those days you stayed with together for the kids, but they don't care anymore. And, yeah and she starts up a queer relationship with someone across the road because she hasn't kissed any girls and she really thinks she it's time she gave it a go Aww. and it's just okay. it's really this... really adorable it's such a cute book well sounds so cozy so remind me what's the title the only purple house in town okay Anne that, that sounds brilliant i'm
0: definitely adding that to my tv <laughs> list perfect for spooky season yes. And on that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening and we'll
1: catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash Dissecting Readers, or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughn.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.